Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well then, you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is October 30th, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. As we did last week, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? How you doing, Neil? You're back in uh, D.C. or Alexandria, is that right? That's right. I'm back for the election. Uh, back for the election. That's right. I don't want to get be stuck in Maine up there while that's going on. Also, as always, uh, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with Christian and all the rest of my team at Hedgeye Risk Management. You can Google it, find out about it, among other things. You will uh, be able to get our newswire, catch up on my show on COVID-19, all of the special interviews and uh, other bigger reports that we do. When it comes to replaying conversations, I think I'm on a roll, Christian. Uh, It's now been three weeks in a row that uh, we've been replaying conversations with interesting people. Uh, Three weeks ago, I talked with JT Taylor, our political strategist here at Hedgeye, about the outlook on the 2020 election. A week later, we did something similar, but with... um, Ami Joseph, the sector head of technology, and last week I ran a conversation uh, with John Malden, an old friend and head of Malden Economics, and Keith McCullough, well, the kind of the guiding spirit and CEO here at Hedgeye, and guess what? We have yet another conversation to replay today, and the subject of this conversation is, I'm sure, on everyone's mind right now, the outcome of next week's election. Uh, I think we have only about uh, four days to go. We just did this call this morning. Uh, Participating again will be J.T. Taylor, as well as Paul Glenshaw, Hedgeye's legal analyst, who has some fascinating insights into the legal battles unfolding around the vote counting in various states and how, I think this is, if everything breaks Trump's way, the Supreme Court could well, end up playing a decisive role in 2020, just as uh, the the court did in 2000. That was the famous Bush versus Gore uh, decision, which actually came in just hours ahead of the safe harbor deadline, which is something we'll talk about again uh, today. Uh, But before we get to the replay, let's do our usual start with you, Christian, and um, on the markets and indicators this past week. Neil, well, markets have been down. Over the last eight trading days, the S&P 500 is down 3.9%, and the global Dow is down 5.1%, and the VIX is on the rise. It closed yesterday at 37.59. So markets down, Neil, volatility up. What's going on? Is this election COVID-related? 
Well, and the uh, you know the VIX is up even higher today. Look, part of part of the reason it's up is markets are going down, uh, but part of it too is just the overall uncertainty about the election. Uh, I think this will be. Look, I mean, we we can get to that, uh, uh, particularly after the indicators, but there remains a great deal of political uncertainty around as we're going to talk about uh, the possibility of a, a kind of, I guess what you call it, sort of a hung election. Right. I think, honestly, the possibilities of that are um, lessening uh, day by day over the past few weeks, frankly. Uh, but it still is there. And I think that casts, uh, that's the reason why the uh, why the futures markets aren't tilted even more than they already are. Uh, and But then again, there's also the economy. So I think actually, honestly, uh, it's the economy that's more pushing the markets right now. Maybe you want to get into that. Uh, what are the kinds of indicators we have? And and then we can talk yeah. for, a, for a moment or two about uh, the impact of uh, the fall wave in COVID. All right. Well, for indicators in the U.S., we got our market PMI flashes for October. Manufacturing came in relatively unchanged at 533 there was a sharp acceleration in new orders pushing that up. Uh, for services, that had a big rise, came in at 56 for October, and that also rose the composite to 55.5. Uh, we were talking recently, Neil, personal income it w- came up in September, 0.9, and that was above expectations of 0.4. Right. How about, uh, I guess, GDP also? Is that right? Right. Q3 GDP, that was up 33.1%. You know, it was pretty close to expectations of 31%. Uh, although it was a huge rise, you know, GDP is still down 3.5% below pre the pre-pandemic outlook. And, you know, probably next quarter, we who knows if we'll have as big of a rise. You know, things are still uncertain. COVID's still not controlled. Right. What about, uh, yeah, again, that's that uh, annualized GDP just to, right. you know, straighten people out. What about uh, Europe? I think that's where a lot of attention is right now. Right. In the Eurozone, you know, one of the biggest pieces that came out was we also got market flashes there and the services fell to 46.2 in October. You know, that's a big contraction. Uh, manufacturing is still up around the 54 level. But, you know, as COVID is wreaking havoc over there, the service industry is what's getting hit the worst. Right. Look, uh, uh, Europe is really getting hit right now. Uh, you know, for a long time, uh, the United States, you know, we had the big surge in um, in April, but we never really went down to norm. We never really, <laughs> we, we always had a very uh, substantial rate of uh, deaths and uh, positive tests and uh, new cases uh, even, you know, throughout the summer and the early fall, uh, Europe went down almost to zero, right? And so it, where there was a sense of complete relief uh, and everyone was springing back into action. Uh, people were uh, relaxing uh, again and really not paying much attention to all the social distancing uh, suggestions. Uh, and now it's really come back hard in Europe, I think partially influenced by, you know, the earlier uh, advent of, of colder and drier weather. Uh, but we now see in Europe all of the major uh, Western European countries, uh, Italy, Spain, UK and France, 
uh, death rates per capita now, which are actually higher than the United States. That, that was just never true. Uh, in fact, you know, the U.S. from very early, even by uh, late May, uh, late April, early May, took over the lead on on uh, on new deaths and and gradually overtook uh, every other country in Europe in terms of cumulative deaths per capita. But now Europe is um, Europe is kind of coming back, you know, in into that uh, into that very negative race, and um, uh, and this is putting a huge damp on, uh, I guess, a huge negative on the economy. It hits services first before it hits manufacturing. That's just what we've seen in the PMIs, and I guarantee you that uh, below fifty PMI and services was definitely more influenced by late October than it was by early October. So we see all the mobility indexes, for instance, retail trade and, and all of the rest uh, just, you know, moving around outside the house, going down over the week, uh, over the month of October. So I think that's that's hitting the markets, along with the trepidations over the fact that uh, we're not going to get uh, any stimulus, uh, probably until a new president comes in. Uh, if if um, uh, if Biden wins, it's very unclear what Trump will do. I think the Senate in that case wants to uh, draw the line. It's I think it's going to stake out its new personality, its uh, its new identity with the public as um, as holding the line on on fiscal sanity. Uh, and look, they can point to the new indicators coming in and they can say, look, this is what happens when you restrain stimulus. People do go back to work. New businesses do get in gear. I mean, that's what we're seeing in the PMIs. They could say, yeah, that's tough on income. Uh, that's tough on retail spending. That's going to be a little bit tough on the demand side of the aggregate equation, right? But it's going to be good for the supply side. So that's the argument that they're going to make. But at the same time, uh, right for now, we're being dragged down by Europe. I think, um, I remember, go back to the uh, numbers you gave, but I believe that the world was down more than the U.S., right? Right. Yeah, yeah 5.1%. Exactly. exactly. So that's kind of reflecting that. Well, great. I don't have much to add on that. I would talk more about significant political developments, but, you know, since we have a conversation coming up uh, on that topic, it hardly seems necessary. Let me just summarize a few highlights in advance uh, on the race. Uh, Joe Biden, while fading slightly in his lead over Donald Trump, remains decisively ahead by 7.5 percentage points in uh, the you know seven-day average national polls as of this morning. Compare that to Hillary Clinton's two-percentage-point lead over Trump back in 2016 at this identical moment, just five days before the election. And Biden is not only doing well nationally, he's decisively ahead in two battleground states, Michigan and Wisconsin, which is almost enough alone for him to win in the Electoral College. And he's significantly ahead in three or more other states and tied with Trump in about three more. So just to translate what this all means, Trump would need an incredible surge uh, to win all of the states in which he is tied or close uh, for him to barely squeak by in the Electoral College. And he is unlikely to do that without court challenges in close states, which remains a possibility. But he'll need a, a big surge even to get that close, in my opinion. 
at the other end of the probability spectrum, if Biden surges late, uh, there is a real possibility of a blue tidal wave and a very significant victory. And remember, the public has changed uh, since prior elections. The public now wants a united, not a divided government. So coattails are much stronger now. So if Biden is winning, a lot more people will more likely to vote for congressmen and senators of the same party. Uh, and this means that, you know, we could get a significant uh, uh, Democratic edge in the Senate. I would say one sign that Trump simply does not have enough time to turn this around is the sharp turn in Biden's favor in futures markets over the last couple of days. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian. I think we went from about 63 to 43 to about 68 to 39, right? Right. And that was yep. all in about, a, I don't know, 36 hours. In the Senate, we continue to view a Democratic majority by one or two seats or maybe zero seats with the addition of Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker as president of the Senate. The Democrats are nearly certain to lose in Alabama, uh, but also to gain in Colorado, Arizona, and I think Maine. They need just one more to break even and take control of the Senate if Biden wins. And they have a lot of other opportunities open to them. The most likely states, uh, I think, would be North Carolina and Iowa, uh, where they are already ahead. Well, enough of this talk. I think I'm just upstaging our own show, Christian. So <laughs> on to my conversation with uh, J.T. Taylor and Paul Glenshuer. Uh, as always, thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Talk to you again next week. Good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining our call today on Election 2020. I'm joined by my colleague, Neil Howe, who is uh, one of the top demographers here in the country. And later in our program, we're going to be joined by my other colleague, Paul Glencher, who is a member of the Supreme Court Bar and also following uh, what's happening in the courts right now as it pertains to the election. So before we get started, we're going to play a brief disclaimer. Hedgeye is a Connecticut registered investment advisor. Hedgeye is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice to individuals. This research is not an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. It is made without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice, nor does it contain any legal or tax opinions. Source information is believed to be reliable, but Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, omissions, or the authenticity <clears throat> of source information. The opinions and conclusions are those of the individual speaking. This report is protected by U.S. and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipients. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. There is a fee associated with access to the support and accompanying materials. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. By joining this call or possessing these materials, you agree to these terms. Contact sales at hedger.com regarding access questions. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover with just over 72 hours to go before the campaign uh, hits uh, election day. And uh, if you're like me, I think uh, most of you are uh, just ready for November 3rd to be over with. There's just so much going on, so much noise out there, and, and here uh, to help us make sense of it all, of course, is, is Neil Howe, uh, who's, who's joining me. Uh, Neil, let's just get right into it and look at the, uh, our battleground map here on slide one. And, uh, yeah. you know, with, yeah, we've got, uh, um, so yeah, so uh, w w the way I look at this is, and I think we've discussed this, and we're, we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this because I think everyone is turning on their uh, TV, seeing some of the same things. But 
uh, I kind of break this into three tiers. And, uh, and, and tier one is essentially Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And these are the three I'm looking at right now that are all leaning Biden. Biden seems to have good margins in these states right now. If these three go Biden, uh, then I think it's game over uh, on, on election night or, or soon thereafter. Uh, tier two, in my opinion, Florida, Arizona, and uh, North Carolina, all very, very close, all toss-ups as we speak. I think uh, Neil chime in here, but the polls are within one, two, three of, uh, points of each other uh, in all, all three of these states. And then I, I uh, the last... Yep. Yeah. Look, uh, Wisconsin and and Michigan have large Biden leads, right? These are the these are going to be the hardest to overcome. I almost take these as a given. Uh, these are very large leads in the polls, um, and that's uh, you know that's uh, you know that's twenty six electoral votes right there, right? So, uh, you know, it was sort of in, in 2016, Trump had to be dealt an inside straight. This is more like he has to be dealt a royal flush, right? I mean, he's yep. got to get everything else, uh, and including Pennsylvania. Uh, but he's got to get all of these others, uh, many of them already tilting uh, Biden's way so that it, it just he's just got to get a you got to get an incredible run, incredible run here. Um, uh Pennsylvania, look, I mean, Pennsylvania and Arizona, the two to watch, right? Uh, if any of those go in addition to Michigan and um, and Wisconsin, uh, that that's kind of the end of it. That's game over. And then the, the, the other tier that, you know, we kind of put into our fold later in the game were um, uh, Georgia, Ohio, Texas, and, and um, Iowa. And Georgia is really interesting right now, isn't it? Well, it's 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 uh, it's tied, you know, along with yeah. the fact that we have two Senate elections uh, taking place, uh, and uh, they may both take place again. Yeah, and we'll get we'll get to that later. <laughs> so. And the other one to appear is like, everyone is uh, talking about Texas right now, and that seems to me. I've, I've talked to a few operatives in Texas uh, uh, just before the call, and the Republican operatives, and they are skeptical that the Democrats can pull it off, but they continue to say that or maintain that if, if uh, uh, they exceed, and right now they're on track to exceed uh, uh, the, the records that were set in the past on, on a, a voter participation, then it could go either way. So they're, they're, they, they still think it needs another cycle. Uh, maybe they're being optimistic, but they said voter turnout, if it exceeds expectations uh, and they have a record, then it's anybody's guess how Texas goes. Just interesting well, that could, neither candidate is going there. You could, you could. Well, they they can't afford to. I mean, yeah. in a way, uh, uh, they've got their hands full. I think particularly Trump has his hands full on the on the on the central battleground straits. But it could uh, change, uh, you know, down the ticket. So you could have another. Words, we're going to talk later about the House of Representatives, but I think a really good showing in Texas could tilt some of those. Um, congressman you know going the other yep. way and yep uh and we'll get to that in, in, in pelosi's plan there and then uh yeah so it it's uh it, 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 a number of different paths uh uh for for biden and i think just a minute or two on florida neil i mean it's florida 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 once again 
uh, if Biden wins Florida, and we, you know, by all indications, we should know on election night what's happening uh, in Florida, uh, the way they tally their votes. Uh, so if that goes Biden's way, um, you know, earlier in the night, then we have an indication of how the, the rest of the night is likely to go. If it's, if it's uh, Trump's, uh, then uh, it's game on. Well, you know, realistically, Trump's hope, I think, is to have enough states that are in that margin of contestability. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of you know, a lot of people's nightmare scenario in sense. Uh where they're counting and their court challenges, and it looks like it's one quarter of 1%, and then certain uh, the mail-in ballots are tossed out, and then the blue blue you know the blue shift kind of comes in a couple of days later as all the mail-in ballots are counted. Courts come in, and they rule against some of them. And anyway, the whole idea is to shift it out so you get beyond uh, you know the first week of December, in which case it can all go to Congress. Uh, but... But anyway, that's the real messy scenario, I think, realistically for Trump. But we'll, we'll come back to that later, and I'm sure I'm sure yeah. Paul will have thoughts on that. Yeah, and anything to make of it, it seems to me as if uh, both candidates are going to Iowa with uh, uh, six votes, uh, and it, 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 the latest polling has them neck and neck, as well as Minnesota. It's sort of a late uh, showing for Trump. I think maybe Trump sees the Trump folks see some opportunity there. The Biden folks want to uh, stay on offense in that state, but it looks as if they're making trips to those two states this weekend. I, I, I well, still have I, Minnesota as a blue. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's certainly so. And, you know, Iowa has the additional advantage. You've got a, a highly contested uh, Senate seat, um, and we're going to mention that, you know, talk about that coming up. All right, Eric, we're going to go to uh, Biden in the lead. Next slide. Yeah, so, Neil, what we're seeing here is, uh, you know, we'll make comparisons to 2016 now and again throughout the program. But what we're seeing here is Biden has a you know pretty consistent lead and has had a pretty consistent lead since the spring of, of, of 2020. And, uh, and nothing really has changed much since then. This is the, uh, nationally, of course. Um, and, uh, again, we're into the final stretch. I think you could, you know, a lot of folks could look back at 2016 and uh, and look at uh, Clinton's numbers at this point. This was a few days after the Comey revelation, and uh, uh, pollsters and others uh, will tell you that they did see her numbers starting to decline uh, uh, post Comey. Uh, we're not well, seeing the, any anything here of that sort. Yeah, JT, the 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 Clinton um, um, uh, the the Clinton Trump uh, final polling numbers are really interesting because first of all. They closed hugely for Trump in the last, you know, three or four weeks. Uh, uh, and, you know, it was much closer than you see here. The problem is, you, as you can see in this in this overall uh, chart here, this is Biden in the lead. I think this chart five that they have it up there. But you can see it's, it's closed a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but not nearly enough, right? What happened with, with Clinton is that Trump came all the way down within two percentage points, uh, uh, actually, and then what happened in the very final days, and it was due to the to the FBI investigations, your you know the announcement. But what happened in the last couple of days is that Clinton's lead began to grow again, and it was at that time that the futures markets just surged heavily in favor of Clinton, right? And everyone thought, okay, the worst was over. <laughs> well, yeah. you know that was the price 
But the point is that the, the, the polls are so much closer back then. We're going to look at that, I think, in just a second coming up. Well, in fact, it's the next chart. You can go on the to the chart. next chart. So I can just walk you through this. This is um, the top one is how Clinton was doing relative to Trump. And you can see this huge movement down. Now, this is up to this date. So this is five days to the election. This is exactly what was happening today in 2016. And you can see Clinton was ahead largely through the summer and so on. You see she really eroded at the end. There was only a 2% margin left. And you can see that uh, Trump versus Biden, it's much larger. It's 7.5. I mean, that's the difference, right? Uh, and you can see finally, and the difference between Biden's lead and Clinton's lead and you can see the difference. Biden's lead is 5.7% points more than Clinton's lead. Now, uh, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's the difference. And as we, as we point out, I think sometimes later, the polls actually didn't get it all that wrong. Clinton surged at the end, I believe right at the end before the election, she was four percentage points up in the polls. Uh, well, she actually won, you know, a two percentage point margin of the popular vote. So the polls were only two percentage points off, right? Uh, and uh, you know, and and uh, and and Trump got in. Yep. And just so, uh, um, not, yeah, not to go back. Another thing, and you know, going back to the battlegrounds a second. When you look at some of the national numbers here back in 2016. Uh, and then uh, and the battleground numbers in 2016, one of the things that uh, uh, we're seeing in Biden's numbers right now are the fact that he's pulling over 50 percent, something Clinton never achieved uh, in, in 2016. So in some of the battleground states, as you're seeing uh, these average of polls over the com last couple of days, last couple of weeks, uh, last couple of months, for that matter, uh, Biden uh, well, you, has a 50 plus in, in a lot of these states. You can actually see that in the next chart. Uh, that is yep. a good segue to it goes right, right into our next chart there, and you can see Biden. We're skipping ahead. <laughs> over over fifty percent here in many of these, um, and that was net, true of neither of the two candidates in 2016. The reason why you had a lot of undecided, a much greater share of undecided uh, people, uh, more like ten percent rather than five percent and very popular third-party candidates. This was yeah. the largest third-party candidate vote uh, in 2016 since, I think, since Ross Perot, you know, back in, yeah. the, back in the 90s. So uh, neither of those true this time. Uh, you don't have any of those uh, distractions, shall we say. None. I think in the next uh, chart, you can see the uh, difference in the uh, absolute error in the national polls. I mean, the point is, and, uh, uh, is the polls generally over time have been getting better, you know, contrary to what people claim. Uh, but uh, uh, everyone remembers when uh, uh, Truman beat Dewey and <laughs> all of those famous elections way back, way back in the 30s and 40s. But uh, as you get uh, forward here again, the, the error in 2016 was two percentage points off. And what we're talking about here is something considerably larger again. And again, I just uh, defer later to Paul who's going to talk about this. But I think the big wild card is can you make it contestable and then do all these legal machinations come into play? That's, that, I think, continues to be the wild card. 
Yeah, and you um, could also argue from uh, you know the the um, from a polling standpoint, and we're not we're not going we're not here to defend that industry at all. But given the fact that by and large some of the state polls were were not entirely right, shall we say, in 2016, they have made some uh, improvements over the in uh, 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 major improvements over the past couple of cycles. And uh, it, it looks as if now that they're, whether they're oversampling or undersampling certain segments of the population, it feels like they have righted that ship. I mean, only time will tell. But 2018 seemed to me, seemed to me as if they had uh, upped their game generally in some of the uh, um, uh, states that uh, most of the country was focused on uh, when, they're, when uh, they're looking at the battle for the House. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair enough. I think the 2018 polls were pretty good. Um, so our point about third party, uh, I think it's the next chart, right? Uh, this yep. is chart nine. You put that up, uh, and you can just see the huge disparity here. Um, you know, in addition to fewer undecided, uh, third party, uh, third parties are just a non-factor this year. Um, yeah. uh, the the candidates are less known, and then everyone feels this election is so important in terms of major party candidate choices that no one is being distracted by third-party votes. So I think that point is made clearly here. Yeah, yeah. and again, looking at, uh, did we talk about undecideds at all in 2016, what a, a huge yeah, number that we, was compared? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, 10, 10% was usually uh, the estimate, that, you know, uh, one month to two months out. I think now it's more like 5%. It's really hard to find a lot of undecided people right now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and is that, you know, any thoughts before we go on to the betting odds? Any thoughts on uh, on um, these these undecideds in this final stretch? And as as the COVID cases go up, and I know you've been speaking on on uh, you have your COVID um, call, uh, a weekly call or biweekly call. Any thoughts on? Again, there's still a small universe of undecideds out there, but any thoughts on how they could break in the midst of this uh, uh, rising cases of, uh, of COVID in these battleground states, especially with uh, well, Trump holding some of these rallies in these states? You know, I think, again, at this point, if people hadn't made up their mind, I'm not sure a Trump rally would really matter one way or the other. Um, we do know that undecideds are, are kind of breaking equally which is good news for Biden. Uh, I think one of the great news, great pieces of news for Trump uh, later in, in very late in 2016 is a lot of the undecideds were, were going to go with Trump. Do you remember that? It was like yep. two oh, thirds yeah. a month, big surge of undecideds for Trump. We, we know that's not happening. Look, undecideds can do uh, one of three things. They can vote for Biden, they can vote for Trump, or they can stay home. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But the point is, there are just not as many of them this year. Yeah. Uh, Trump's uh, approval yeah. rating. Excuse me? Trump's approval rating, oh. pretty much the same as, as where we left off four years ago, huh? We have a, not, yeah, we have, a, we, have a, we have an implied bidding odds, I think, is uh, chart 10. Um, do we have oh, that? Oh, gosh, I'm, yeah. I missed that one. I am sorry. Go ahead on that. It's all right. You know, I mean, it's shuffling through a deck. You know, what the heck? <laughs> Uh, I I'm having the same thing. So, so this is interesting. This is just last night, uh, yesterday, and this morning. Uh, it's actually broken for Biden uh, upward. You can see that, right? We finally have motion. I was actually waiting for this 
we saw the same thing, interestingly. I know we talked about this, JT. We have we saw the same thing happen for uh, Clinton, right? Uh, it was about uh, 64, you know, 36 uh, uh, Clinton up about five days before when she had a 2% lead. And then suddenly she started getting this extra, as I explained before, this mini surge in the very final days. And I believe the, the betting odds for Clinton went all the way up to something like 80 or 85% for Clinton. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That was the sense, that was the sense of whipsaw because everyone thought at the very end Clinton was finally clinching it. Right? And, and I think that's why everyone is so dazed at the end. Well, we'll see. Uh, but right now we see it breaking. And again, my my point about betting odds is that it's a little like an expiring option. Um, what matters for Biden is not just that he's head in the polls, but that time is running out, right, for the price to change, right, for the for the approval ratings to change, for the intentions of voters to change. And, and in addition, of course, uh, the majority of people have already voted by now, JT. This is also a new thing in politics, oh, yeah. right? Um, so, so the point is that I think this is the the sense among among uh, 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 betters is that the the time the time has run out. There's not enough time left. You know, time becomes a factor in an option before expiration. Um, yeah, and now back, now to the approval rating. Yeah. Now, now we go to this one yet. <laughs> this feels as if uh, uh, this is where we uh, left off almost uh, uh, four years ago, uh, uh, maybe off by a point or two. But Trump's approval rating has pretty much stayed in that same general, actually probably gone down a bit since uh, uh, December, uh, since November of 2016, January of 2017. Uh, and, and so th this is it does not bode well for a, a reelection uh, of an incumbent president. And um, again, looking at these approval ratings, going back to 2016 for a second, uh, in comparing, let's compare Biden uh, to Clinton. Biden is polling 10% uh, higher than Clinton was in 2016, uh, in 2016 terms. And he's actually polling 18 points than Trump is right now. So Trump's approval rating has just uh, been stagnant uh, uh, almost from day one. And Biden has, uh, for the most part, been steady. And in fact, I think over the past couple of weeks, it's gone up or ticked up a bit or two. Yeah, well, look, uh, as, as you and I know, uh, there's no president in history that since we've been taking approval poll ratings who, who, who has scored so consistently low throughout his presidency. Now, presidents do have unpopular waves, right? I mean, they have times at which they become really unpopular. But, but the consistency of these low ratings is, um, is remarkable, right? Uh, regardless of whether the uh, incumbent wins or loses <laughs> a re-election campaign, we, we've we've never really seen that. And, and just think back before we head to the uh, House and the Senate. Think back to 2016. You know, could you could you talk at all about you know did Trump have momentum going into this final weekend, uh, and and or did you think you know as you said earlier that Clinton regained it uh, again? Bit? I think the very end. I think where Trump had momentum was in about week three through one of, you know, pre-election. And that's when everything was going Trump's way. I think at the very end, it looked as though the, the polls were, were shifting 
uh, Clinton's way and kind of, you know, giving her an extra margin. Uh, that yeah. turned out to be not the case because it turned out, again, a much larger share of undecideds and the third party. The other thing about third parties is a lot more people intend to vote for a third party than eventually do. So a lot of those third party tentatives, you know, they you know how people are about third parties. I'm going to vote green. I'm going to vote libertarian. But when you finally get in the booth, you think, nah, 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 I, I'm going to make this vote count. Right. So what they found was a lot of those people were voting for Trump often is a protest vote. And I, I, I pointed out, I'm, I'm sure that we've talked about this before, a very significant share of, of uh, voters who voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary in 2016 voted for Trump. I think it was about uh, 12, 13% of them, which is sort of remarkable, but they wanted someone who would disrupt the system. There's going to be nothing like that at all this, this time. No, in fact, and in, in we'll get to this either today or, or post-election should there be a, a Biden victory and a shift in Congress. But it, it appears to me as if the Sanders forces and the Ocasio-Cortez forces have been really upping their game on behalf of Biden uh, for the past two or three months. And that's completely different than what we experienced in 2016. And so you're seeing that in uh, Bernie's been out there uh, working the youth vote, which, uh, uh, as we know from uh, the past two cycles, he's very popular in that younger segment of the population. Ocasio-Cortez has been doing the same thing. And I suspect that they're going to, uh, should Biden win, come back and uh, demand uh, a bigger voice uh, and seat at the table when all is said and done. So that 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 will get to later uh, today or uh, as we start to uh, talk about various well, uh, post-election scenarios. That could be some trouble. You, you, you and I, I'm sure you're going to talk about that after the election when all the infighting breaks out about uh, Biden's policy vacuum. So you're going to have all, yep. you know, you're going to have Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie and all these forces coming in to try to fill that space. What do you mean after the election? Already started. <laughs> there we go. All right, slide 12. We're going to head to the House and Senate, start off with the Senate again. And uh, there have been uh, uh, a few changes here uh, by Cook and, and others, and also in our calculations on slide 12 and, slide 12 and 13. Uh, from day one, uh, Neil and I have, have uh, always put uh, Doug Jones in Alabama as a, a lost cause uh, for, the, for the Democrats. So that is going to be going back uh, uh, into the Republican column, we, we feel. And I think that we feel that Colorado, Arizona are, are almost certainly going to move uh, back into or back to the uh, uh, Democrat column as well. And Maine is interesting. I mean, it's a, a very tight race right now, and we're still giving the edge to Gideon. Uh, but that is a uh, another, uh, and we're going to get to this when we talk to Georgia, but that is another situation where if no candidate gets to 50%, uh, that um, uh, you have to ca uh, you have to go to your second choice, and when you look at your second choice, um, uh, when you look at the, th the the third person in the race, it's a, a member of the Progressive Party. Uh, it's almost certain that that would be a second choice uh, for some of Gideon's voters. So I think Gideon really has the edge here, and that's why Neil and I have have said all along that uh, we we think that is uh, hers to lose right now. Any thoughts there before I move yeah, to well, the you know. This is preferential voting, and uh, yep. an increasing number of states are, are implementing it. 
you can make a strong, you know, statement vote for, you know, someone in a third party, and you can feel good about that. But as soon as they're out of contention, your vote then moves to your second choice. And so you save the power of your vote for what matters at the same time. No question that that works in uh, Sarah Gideon's favor. Yeah. And uh, these three, I think, are are clear. Uh, the the problem for the Democrats is that if if uh, you know with the Biden victory in order to take the Senate they've got to get one more seat right one more seat uh, yeah they have to get one more seat you know they they lose Alabama they gain in Colorado Maine Arizona but they've all they need is like one of all these toss ups right these yep. all go these are all Republican incumbencies all they need is one of them. And that's yeah. why people generally rate the odds of the Democratic takeover to be pretty good, because in a lot of these places, and I'm sure you're going to go over them quickly here, JT, but uh, the Democrats are leading. I mean, let's start with North Carolina and work our way down. Yeah, North Carolina, I mean, it's it, Cunningham had a healthy lead in that state early on in the race, and he has really, uh, well, he had a, a sexting issue, uh, as, as well as a, a number of others. And it's remarkable that uh, Tillis isn't hasn't overtaken him yet. So, you know, again, I, I still feel this is a, a state I worked uh, with uh, during my tenure in Congress, uh, working in Congress. And um, this is going to be a, a, still going to be a tough one for Cunningham. And again, we have a presidential race here as well, as we know. And uh, this is going to be a, a, a turnout uh, election. Uh, and, you know, it, it could go either way and really help um, um, uh, either candidate. Iowa, again, uh, Joni Ernst, the incumbent Republican, had a really good edge on this seat uh, months ago. I mean, a year ago, Neil, we weren't even talking about the Democrats uh, taking back the Senate. The map just didn't favor uh, uh, that prospect. Uh, again, you know, had I think had Trump been performing at 2016 levels, in some of these states uh, or a little better than his 2016 levels would be a different story, but you know, we are where we are right now. And Ernst is really finding herself uh, in an, in a battle uh, w with Greenfield. And this again is going to be tied to the presidential race. Uh, Montana is one you and I've always liked uh, from day one. Um, Bullock uh, uh, Danes. I mean, obviously the Danes is the incumbent a Republican. Uh, it is a red state a very red state, but Bullock is very popular in the state. And uh, again, uh, Danes is, uh, could, could he or could he not be saddled by uh, his ties to uh, Trump? We'll see, but I think that does give Bullock uh, uh, an opportunity to sneak in there in the final uh, final days. And then um, Georgia is the one that's just uh, fascinating, not just on the presidential level, but on uh, on the Senate level as well. Uh, there was a debate between Ossoff and Purdue, uh, I believe it was last night or yesterday, and Ossoff, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, scored some uh, significant points against Purdue. I don't know if that's going to change the dynamic here, uh, but these two are neck and neck. Uh, the, the polls are bouncing a point up, a point down for each of them. Um, and again, this is one of two Georgia seats uh, this one, uh, uh, both seats have to get over 50%, and I, I think everybody on this uh, call knows that by now. And this one has a third-party candidate in it as well, a libertarian in this race, likely to pull both of them below 50%. So I say there's a good chance this goes to a runoff in, in addition to the second seat, which is a special election, a two-year uh, special election. 
and that has 14 or 15 different candidates in it. Uh, and that vote is is uh, split with with the exception that the Democrat uh, is up to 41 or 42 percent right now, uh, Reverend Warnock. I, I don't yeah, expect him to hit hit 50 percent, but go ahead, Neil. Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you have uh, Raphael Warnock, who's this Baptist preacher, and he's uh, he's he's really striking in court. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you noticed, but he's pushed Matt uh, Matt Lieberman, Joe Lieberman's son, right? Uh, who I, I don't know, that's kind of some weird carpetbagging situation. I don't know how we ever ended up in Georgia. Maybe you can tell me the backstory on that one of these days. But anyway, <laughs> he's, he's down there running. But he's been completely sidelined by the phenomenon of this Raphael Warnock. Uh, who's Warnock, a yeah. dynamo. And people yeah. are gravitating for Here's what's interesting, and just to maybe a little bit of a sigh here to talk about uh, African-American senators. Right now, in 2013, it was the first time, uh, JT, that we had two sitting African-American senators at, at one time. Uh, and that was actually Tim Scott and Mo Cohen uh, back, you know, that was in Massachusetts. He was a brief appointee. Now we have three. We have Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and Tim Scott, you know, two Democrats, one Republican. And we have two additional ones, actually three running. We have Raphael Warnock, who's coming on strong. Uh, we haven't talked about Jamie Harrison um, against uh, uh, Lindsey Graham. That's an interesting race, right? That's that's the other senator besides besides Tim Scott. And then we have John James in Michigan. Um, yep. But anyway, I, I think that's a really interesting sign. We see a lot of new interest in these um, in the in these African American candidates. Particularly, what's new is is in the South. Yep. Um, so this this is um, kind of kind of interesting, exciting. It's interesting. And, and so while we said there's a lot of good news out there for Democrats right now, there's also a little bad news here in Minnesota and Michigan. Uh, as you said, John James is running against uh, 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 Gary Peters in Michigan. And I think uh, Peters is up by four or five points, probably should be up more uh, at this point. But James is giving him a run for his money. So our our predictions are based on um, um, our, the, the the Democrats taking the Senate are based on uh, Democrats holding Minnesota and Michigan, and there are we don't want to spend a ton of time on those two, but there are uh, there are signs that those are tightening up, and again both are going to be tied to the presidential uh, very closely to the presidential and all all of that focus in in, the, in those two states. But Democrats have to hold this and then gain one of these other toss ups as we said. Uh, to, to take over the Senate. South Carolina, as you said, Lindsey Graham, Jamie Harrison. Jamie Harrison raised a record number of, of dollars here in the past couple of months. That is neck and neck, but you still have to give Graham the edge. I mean, it is a very, very yeah. red state, and uh, but it is going to be a turnout election, and, 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 and Harrison is, is doing his best to turn out the, the uh, African-Americans in that state, which could be the margin of victory for him. Uh, Texas, let's not you know waste a ton of time on Texas just yet. I mean, if the state goes blue somehow, um, I, I still think Cornyn could prevail. This might be one of the ticket splitting states. I, 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 I you know, I, I'm not sure of that, but uh, Cornyn is on the map, and I think you know I've talked to some friends up in uh, the Kansas area. Uh, the the race there seems to be tightening up and worth watching. Again, it, it could be anyone's guess, but right now I still have to give the edge to uh, uh, the Republican uh, challenge. Uh, the Rep it's an open seat, so the Republican in that race. 
um, shift to the house. I mean, if, if next just, just just to recap on that, uh, if Texas and Kansas win for the Democrats in their in their uh, Senate candidacies, that's going to be a banner day for the Democrats. That's that's the scenario where Biden has a huge, you know, that's the other extreme, right? I'd say yep. one extreme, the sort of contested election. The other is that Biden just gets an overwhelming blue tidal wave. And and one thing to keep in mind, this is, again, different than 2016 or actually many of the earlier elections, and that is voters no, want, no longer want divided government. And actually, that has implications for coattails, right? We were just talking about that. Now, increasingly, people want the same party in power as in the White House as in Congress. Why? Because yep. then we'll get stimulus passed, you know, government will function again, we'll get some kind of policy on COVID. In other words, in other words let's, 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 everything aligns. Everything aligns. Um, I think we may have lost my audio. Can you still hear me? Oh, I'm here for yeah. that. Gotcha. Uh, so on the race for the House, again, not, uh, they're just noteworthy that to um, uh, talk about, you know, Neil and I made this call earlier in the summer, or actually uh, later in the summer, I should say, right around Labor Day, where we uh, were, were, we, we think that Pelosi saw a bit of an opening in uh, some pink uh, districts, uh, Republican pink districts, not quite red, but pink districts, and started making a play there. Democrats were flush with cash, uh, so she saw an opportunity and, and took advantage of it. And it could pay some dividends. She's going to need a cushion uh, in the House. We're, we're still not calling for uh, the House to change hands. At one point, we were calling for either a five-seat five, uh, Republican gain or a five-seat Democrat gain. Right now, we're looking at a potential seven, I think, seven to 12, uh, seven to 13, 14-seat uh, gain for the Democrats. And uh, Pelosi is going to need that cushion uh, going into the midterms in 2022. And uh, also, I think once the pad, some of the some of these the seats in in these gray areas here that we're seeing in these toss up areas are in purple districts. These are districts, as we talked about, that that uh, Trump won in 2016, and also uh, pink districts as well. So we're not talking about a lot of liberals in this up number, but uh, a number of the progressives or liberals did win a number of primaries and will win. There are going to be a number of new progressive entrants uh, into the, the next Congress, uh, giving Pelosi, I think, fits. Uh, and we're starting to see signs of that already. So we'll, as we talk about uh, that after the election, uh, it's certainly going to be a play for uh, who Biden puts in his cabinet, uh, who he, uh, what policies he chooses to uh, pursue first. I mean, lots of ramifications on um, how, 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 how big of a, a, a margin uh, Pelosi has in the House. Yeah, one, one additional just sidelight on this is that uh, even though the Democrats will pick up even more seats, so even bigger margin, it won't change the state delegations, okay? And I wanna point that out because in case we do get a, um, a contested election that goes all the way to the House, you know, as per, <laughs> as per our constitution, uh, the in a contested election, the states vote by state delegation, and the Republicans still will control under almost any scenario imaginable. They still will control 26 
uh, versus 24 of the state delegations. So the same tilt that favors them when it comes to senators and the Electoral College favors them here in, a, in any sort of House standoff. These are the, these are the unique uh, election rules uh, for the House, uh, actually spelled out in the Constitution. You actually need a constitutional amendment to change that. Uh, and, and so that remains, right, uh, in that very kind of low, I would say, low probability scenario where we actually get an election going to the House that still remains um, a possible route, right, uh, for a re-election uh, for Trump. Um, um, quickly getting to these next two uh, uh, voters by demographics. This is your forte, Mr. Howe. Uh, yes. Well, this is interesting. We just decided to line these up. Uh, the 2020 numbers comes from a, a recent Pew survey. The 2016 and 2012 are all Edison uh, exit polls uh, for those respective presidential elections. And I, I just thought some of this stuff was sort of fascinating. Uh, first of all, a point we made earlier, interestingly enough, where Trump is suffering in 2020 in the gender gap is an increasing share of men don't favor Trump. It's actually not a widening of the gender gap. Women actually really haven't changed all that much. Uh, actually, you know, the ones who favored Romney, Trump, Trump, you see that actually men have changed more, uh, particularly over yep. the last four years. Uh, in terms of race ethnicity, again, interestingly, interesting. The biggest decline uh, for Trump support has been among whites. I mean, I, again, I think there's a little bit sort of, a, what would you say, counterintuitive or not exactly what we call the, uh, the kind of the, the media trope right now. Uh, exactly but you can right. see blacks are being kind of the same. Hispanics have grown increasingly favorable to the Republican Party. And we've talked about that earlier. You can see, even see between 2016 and 2020, particularly true for the rising share of Hispanics who are Protestant. Protestant Hispanics are going 50-50 now for Trump. Um, and uh, you can just see that shift. So we've talked about that before. Uh, very few, uh, you know, relatively few uh, Hispanics voted for Romney. And again, uh, uh, Asians, however, are going the opposite direction. We've talked about that. Asians are becoming increasingly a Democratic voting group uh, rather than a Republican voting group. Uh, by age, as you can see, the big news is millennials. Uh, they are absolutely not voting for Trump. I think only 30% estimated in 2020 to vote for Trump. That's about the number that voted for John McCain back in the initial election for Obama. And that was the last yep. time you had millennials so tilted in one direction. That was back in 2008. But the most fascinating one, JT, and I know you, you will enjoy this because this has to do with the changing demographics of the Republican Party, right? Back when Romney ran against Obama, 42% of postgraduates voted for Romney, 51% of college graduates. Look how that changed. Today, it's 31% of postgraduates voting for Republicans and 38%. I mean, those are huge double-digit declines, right? Meanwhile, among high school or less, it's gone from 47, 51 to 53% voting for the Republican Party, right? This is the kind of Trump shift in the composition of the Republican Party. And a lot of working class folks used to be Democrats moving into the Republican Party. And a lot of the college educated, this is a suburban shift we're talking about moving away. And this is a little bit of a 
signs of a realignment. Uh, and we'll probably talk about this, I know, after after the election, kind of what's going on there. Yep. And quickly on slide 16, Neil, this is a great yeah. chart that we found last week. Yeah, this is just my old favorite. Um, as I often point out, if you want to look at who votes most for Trump, it's Gen Xers. Okay, so basically born people today age 55 to um, 64, uh, maybe getting a little bit of, you know, what I would call first wave boomers in there, people born at the very early 1960s. But you can see, but if you really want the, the part of Gen X that most votes for Trump, it's early way of Xers. This is sometimes called Generation Jones. These are people born in the late 1950s, very early 1960s. They came of age with Reagan. They tend to be a pretty libertarian bunch. They, uh, they tend to believe in markets. They pretty much stay away from government. And uh, look at that. As you go now beyond age 65, it actually begins to turn back blue. Uh, this, is, this was not true, actually, back in 2012. Uh, but you know, as I often say, you can also see it in the composition of House members. You can see the uh, Gen Xers account for the huge majority of uh, House members on the Republican side, but they're uniquely underrepresented uh, for House members on the Democratic side, uh, which tends to be much more of a bimodal distribution of older, older people, Pelosi age people, and millennial age people. Uh, this uh, is now you, the now. The Start, uh, JT. This is uh, early voters. Yeah, I mean they're they're out in uh, out in record numbers. I think every day continues to climb, continues to break records. Uh, just to cover this quickly, we we, we probably could spend uh, a half hour on this, but yeah, my takeaway is, and, and and you're welcome to chime in, Neil. But my takeaway right now is that. You know, there are various trends that you could pick out of this. You could say that uh, the Democrats might be cannibalizing their, their day of vote by voting early. I happen to think that the more you can bank before Election Day, the better off you are. Who knows what's going to happen on Election Day, whether it's weather, a poll being closed, long lines, what have you. So the most you can bank early on, I think, gives you an advantage. And I think one thing uh, where, where I like to point out, though, where money makes a difference in, in politics is – in this very final stretch, this very final weekend, both Republicans and Democrat uh, campaign operatives are, are pouring through their voting rolls and looking at who voted and who didn't vote. And so, you know, if you have a, a record number of early voters getting out there and your party's out there, then uh, what are you going to do? You're going to spend your, all your money identifying those who haven't voted and try to get them out. These are less or like, uh, less frequency voters. Uh, and this could help them uh, balance whatever. If you're a Democrat and you banked a lot of votes and you're expecting a Republican surge on Election Day, uh, getting some of these less frequent voters out could help offset that as well. So the other thing is uh, more than you know, 16 million voters didn't vote in 2016, have already voted. And so there are going to be some interesting analysis after the, after the election. But I think the the, the more votes that exceed this 150 million number, the more uncertain this uh, outcome becomes. And I think that's why you see a lot of Democrats being very skittish right now uh, because of this unknown unknown. So, uh, but this is, um, this is going to continue through the weekend uh, uh, and on into um, onto November 3rd. New, any thoughts there before we move? Well, yeah, I would say my big takeaways from this chart is first of all, you know, 
look at the smaller increase in likely Trump states as opposed to likely Biden states. So the first takeaway is, is that pro-Biden states show a much larger surge. Why? Because more Democrats are voting in by mail by a significant margin. And it's enough to make a big change in the surge. And the second big takeaway is by far the biggest surge is in toss-up states, in battleground states, right? Yep. And that just shows the intensity of interest, I think, in, yep. in this election. And then just on the next slide, 18, uh, before we, we introduce Mr. Glencher here, um, this, this timeline for, for states processing, tabulating, reporting ballots, just worth taking a look at this. Uh, and just, it's sort of a mishmash out there. And uh, it, Paul's going to address the states that we should be watching on election night. But um, uh, we think that Florida may have some early results. So we're going to be watching Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, these are all states that are prepared for this, that have been through this, even Texas, that have been through this before, that we're, where we're not expecting uh, this to go on beyond uh, uh, election day. Uh, so, but, but definitely take a look at, uh, uh, a look at this chart and um, um, it will help you understand um, where, we're, where we're headed on election night and what to watch on election night. But those are the states I'd be looking at, especially look at returns uh, from um, the Gulf Coast of Florida, which could be indicative of uh, Trump support in that state. Um, so we're now going to bring in, and our last chart is countdown yeah, to let, chaos. Let me, just, let me just bring in this last chart here, and then I think that's a good segue into Paul. Um, this is just countdown to chaos. Uh, and I think, as we were saying, the, the odds of this uh, kind of catastrophe or chaotic uh, 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 you know, uh, end game is substantially lessened, I think, by poll trends in, in recent weeks. Uh, but th these are the relevant dates to keep in mind, particularly, and, and you know, Paul will probably talk about this, uh, December 8th, which according to the, uh, you know, Election Count Act, I believe, of 1888, is the deadline for election disputes. What goes beyond that, it's much more easily, uh, you know, taken into the, to the, to the Congress and adjudicated on on January 6th, when all the electoral uh, votes are presented to the Senate and the Vice President and the House in a, in a joint session. But with that, Jay, why don't you bring on uh, uh, Paul yes. to talk about some. So we have uh, uh, my, our colleague Paul Glencher on the phone, and, and Paul covers uh, uh, TMT for, for the firm. He also covers uh, legal catalysts and is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. So watching some of these uh, developments uh, in the courts and in the states uh, as we speak. So I think we're going to talk about what he's seeing in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and then overnight uh, we've got uh, uh, some news or breaking news, if you will, uh, on Mich um, I'm sorry, on Minnesota. Uh, Paul? Yeah, um, good morning. Um, there is some prospect, if it's a close enough election, let's face it, to having another almost Bush versus Gore post-election dispute ending up in the Supreme Court, and that could happen um, primarily in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. There are basically five battleground states where I think this is a pretty significant issue. Um, Michigan, this is where ballot deadlines for mail-ins were extended. Um, in all of these cases, by state law, state statutory law, um, with the exception of North Carolina, 
they all require that mail-in ballots be received by, say, 8 p.m. on election night. In all five states, there were extensions that were uh, established either by a court order or by an election board uh, decision. Three of those states for now, we, well, two of them, we can take off the table. Number one, Michigan, a state court subsequently said that the ballot extension deadline is invalid. So the state courts of Michigan took that one off the table as of now. Um, in Wisconsin, a federal district court extended the ballot deadline, a U.S. district court. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Barrett is from that circuit. She's on the Supreme Court now. She was involved in this decision, but the, the Seventh Circuit said that ballot extension uh, is not valid. And the Supreme Court refused to stay or suspend the Seventh Circuit decision. So, in effect, the ballot deadline is Election Day in Wisconsin. Minnesota's last night. Now, as of now, technically, the ballots can still come in. I think it's up to as much as a week later. I mean, all the deadlines get blurred. Uh, there's so many going on here. But they indicated very strongly that it's probably illegal. It's probably unconstitutional to extend the ballot deadline beyond Election Day in Minnesota. Um, but it's a preliminary, almost procedural ruling in the sense that it's it's not making a final decision that it's illegal to extend the ballot deadline. But what they're saying is segregate the ballots, get ready to have them disqualified, do what you have to do to cordon them off so that if the order ultimately comes down that they're uh, invalid, you can get rid of them and toss out the votes. So that's what's happening in Minnesota as of now. Two states, the ballot extensions currently are allowed, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. But they are also subject to the same legal dispute. The Supreme Court has not stopped those extensions. Um, and here's the basic fight. Um, bottom line, it's what do we have to do to make sure that people's right to vote is fully exercisable versus what the Constitution directly says. that says that the time, place, manner of electing congressmen and senators shall be prescribed by the legislature of a state. The legislature, not a court, not the Board of Elections, not the governor, the legislature. And then with presidential electors, the ones who go to the Electoral College to cast the presidential votes, it says those electors shall be appointed in a manner directed by the state legislature. So what does all that mean? The basic fight you have between the conservative justices and the liberals is what side are you going to take? The right to vote with respect to the the access to the ballot, the easy exercise of it, versus a constitutional explicit directive that seems to um, empower state legislatures to make the rules. And any variation that is not done by the state legislature would therefore be invalid. That's yep. the fight. And I think right now, the way it's lining up with the addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the court is you have five votes, probably. I mean, Kavanaugh, believe it or not, you can't 100% you know, predict where he would lean. But I think Justices Gorsuch, Alito, likely Clarence Thomas, are pretty much on the record, hey, the Constitution says what it says. If the state legislature is supposed to make the election rules, no matter what you want to do as a matter of, you know, enhancing access to the voter franchise, that no matter what you want to do on that, the Constitution says what it says. It has to be done by the state legislature. They're textualists. They're not policymakers. And they say... You know, as bad as the pandemic is, they've had months to deal with it. And in fact, in Pennsylvania, they passed a, a, a piece of state election legislation 
to facilitate voting in the amid COVID that was done in March, but they did not change the deadline of election night for the receipt of ballots. The Supreme Court says, hey, the legislature left it in place. The state Supreme Court can't just get rid of it. So yeah. this is the fight that they're having. I suspect there will be five votes because I think Justice Barrett is likely, probably, can't know for sure, to go with the Gorsuches and Alitos on the court and say, you know what? The state legislature has to do it. These extensions are not done by the state legislature. Toss them out. And that would be a five to four um, decision that yep. would invalidate the late ballots. Paul, we're going to be uh, uh, likely coming back to you or maybe not likely coming back to you uh, uh, on election night or the day after the election, depending on the outcome here. So I know you're on standby for that. Thank you very much for that. We are going to, uh, to we have time for a few questions. Uh, and again, if you have anything else to send us, send it to QA at hedgeye.com. Uh, one question came in, what party has an advantage going into the 2022 midterm elections? Good God. Um, I'd say that, uh, depending on Pelosi's margin this time around, uh, that uh, the, the party in power typically lose seats, the incumbent party in power typically lose seats. This is the, if, if the Democrats sweep on Tuesday. So she is probably trying to pad her number now, knowing that she's going to lose seats. Just think for a second what happened uh, when uh, the uh, Pelosi took over Congress halfway through Trump's term. Uh, we we're talking about uh, hearings and subpoenas and and uh, and of course impeachment. So I, I, you can bet that if Biden and the Democrats sweep on Tuesday, that uh, she's praying, hoping, and praying for a bigger number. Secondly, on the Senate side, just quickly looking at the Senate map. Uh, 12 uh, Democrats up, 20 Republicans up, and then you have the race in Arizona and Georgia, which are special elections. But the 12 seats that the Democrats have to defend are on rather favorable ground. New York, California, Washington, Oregon, Maryland, Vermont. I mean, those are very, very blue states. On the other hand, uh, the, Democrat, uh, the Republicans have to defend seats. An open seat in Pennsylvania uh, looks like Ohio. Uh, North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin, Iowa, uh, even uh, Alaska, if I'm not mistaken. So I think the Republicans have a bit of a challenge going into the uh, 2022 midterms, which does have policy implications as well. JT, uh, a a great way for uh, people to understand who's vulnerable in the Senate is to count back six years and look at what's going on, right? So you count back six years from uh, 2022, well, that's 2016, right? And that's when you got a lot of new Republicans coming in. 2014, which is six years before now, is when you had, you know, there's a pretty good Tea Party surge, right? So you always count back six years and you can kind of assess vulnerability. I I actually have one question for Paul, um, because I I found this fascinating what he, he raised. So my question for you, Paul, is that if, Let's assume you're an attorney for the Democratic Party, okay? So I can imagine two arguments. One would be to argue, you know, the fairness and due process being violated. I suppose the other argument is that some of these states, do they not have some provision even in the statute for national emergency contingency? You know, in other words, if there is an emergency like a bomb or some huge thing going on, you have some wiggle room, right? The election boards and so on have wiggle room. Uh, am I off base, or what would you say if you were arguing the Democratic side of this? That, that's what was being argued, I think. Now, Pennsylvania, when the Supreme Court did not stay 
the decision that allowed the ballot extension by three days. Um, there was no opinion on that, but I suspect that that very analysis was, um, at least for now, convincing to Chief Justice Roberts. Because I think what his view seems to be, and he basically has said in a subsequent decision, I think, in, involving a, another state, um, he said, look, it, we let Pennsylvania go forward. I think it was Wisconsin, but we can't do Wisconsin because that was a federal court that extended it. In Pennsylvania, it was a state Supreme Court interpreting state law. He seems to be hinting, look, it, let the states interpret state law. If they say the Board of Elections has general broad power, whether that should logically override a very specific state law, specifically defining the ballot deadline as election day, you know, maybe we wouldn't do that, but the states can do what they want if they're a separate sovereign, you know, authority. And I think his hint is if the states are interpreting how they want to do it, what is what is the manner directed by the legislature? I mean, presidential electors will be appointed by the, in the manner directed by the legislature. Well, what if they say, okay, we're going to let the state Supreme Court decide. The state legislature says the Board of Elections can do it. The, st the state Supreme Court can do it. Well, is that the manner directed by the legislature, or does it have to be a legislative process, passing laws through assembly, through Senate, signed by the governor? Does it mean that? The Constitution doesn't explicitly say. So I think yeah. you, you do have that argument. And, you know, what does it mean to be directed by the legislature? Does that have to be a traditional legislative process? And you see Gorsuch, for example, in the North Carolina uh, denial of, of interim relief, where he says legislator, legislative in the state constitution of North Carolina says all legislative power vests in the legislature. So that means that no other entity, in his view, can do it. But that's a federal court looking at state law. And I think Roberts has a problem with federal courts saying what state law is that conflicts with what the state Supreme Court has to say about it, even if it's blatantly political. I think that's where they are. That's why having Justice Barrett on the court is, is enormous. She's yep, the fifth vote. Yep. Um, one last question here. Um, how are they discounting voter suppression on the impact of the outcome? For example, there are signs that mail is taking a long time in Pennsylvania, so lots of ballots may not arrive in time. Are there specific states where the risk is highest? Oh, my God. Um, I have no way to assess that. I don't think anyone does. Um, yeah. You. One one thing I have heard actually is that the uh, postal service employees. I know we've looked at some of these stories. Uh, JT is actually working overtime, uh, even without pay, uh, to try to make sure that this thing actually gets carried out. You know, regardless of what the you know the 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 head of the postal service is telling them to do, uh, it's kind of an heroic effort. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any guess on that, uh, Paul? No, I don't. I know, I know yeah. that, for example, uh, she, she, the the um, person who sent the question could be referring to Butler County, Pennsylvania, which is just north of my hometown, and there were uh, thousands of ballots, I think, that uh, were never sent out. So they are now scrambling. Um, they are now scrambling to FedEx them to uh, uh, various recipients college students living out of state. Uh, they are using the sheriff, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to deliver them on time. But I don't know, other than sort of this last-minute um, um, uh, scattershot approach, I don't know if there is any uh, anything that is uh, 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 certain that they're pursuing to uh, uh, fix this. 
I don't think they can. I will say this. Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota, was on last night on CNN after the Minnesota's uh, Eighth Circuit federal court decision hinting that late ballots are going to post-election day ballots received will be thrown out. Um, And she said, look it, don't mail it. She's telling all the folks, don't mail it, you know, walk it in, find a way to do this, do not stick it in the mail at this point. So, I mean, in a way, these court decisions by coming out have, you know, got them scrambling to say, look it, we have to make sure we get these things in and people don't just cavalierly head to the mailbox. So, I think that'll have an effect too. I heard that maybe like half a million of them are still outstanding in Minnesota. Wow. Uh, so one, I think one more, I guess we have a little time. Um, is it, is it not clear to me that the obvious bias is that the court is siding, siding with red on headline on deadlines won't hurt them as much as it hurts the blue given the chance of COVID uh, reducing election day votes um, in swing states. Anyone want to comment on that one? Uh, Well, we've seen a lot of surveys done on the share of, you know, uh, Biden's Biden voters versus Trump voters that are voting in person and not. And it's about a two thirds, one third ratio. So I think that uh, the party's assessment of who wins and who loses from this is, is uh, pretty valid. uh, Right. I mean, if you, if you basically curtail a mail-in balloting, uh, that's a plus for that, that's a plus for the Republican Party in this election. There's no question well, about the, it. And, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's the thing. You know, you're right. The Republicans are the ones suing to try to you know keep the extensions of election day. I mean, I think that that tells you what what their surveys and their research tells them. The other thing to keep in mind is that I forgot to mention this. I think it's really important. We keep talking about ballot extensions, having additional time to turn in those ballots, whether they'll count or not. In North Carolina, what's really critical there um, is that they also dispense with a state statutory witness requirement. They used to require two witnesses. They passed COVID legislation that says, hey, that could be hard. Only one witness now for the execution of an absentee or mail-in ballot. And then the the court, uh, through settlement, um, that basically modified that and essentially said voters can self-certify they don't need a witness. Well, a lot of these ballots may come in without a witness. And if it turns out that all of these changes from the state election law are invalid, that one's probably invalid too. I think that's likely to have probably a larger impact on the ballot count uh, in North Carolina than the extension of the, the deadline. Because State law allowed a three-day extension. They're just fighting over whether it's three days or it's nine days, something like that. There'll probably not be a big ballot extension problem uh, in North Carolina. Some, but maybe not horrendous. The witness requirement, that could invalidate a lot of ballots. And that's the one people aren't talking about. It also presents the opportunity for ballot stuffing. I mean, you you can imagine people coming out with organized efforts to just, right, uh, invent ballots. The problem is, of course, in the courts looking at this, getting testimony, getting evidence, they don't have much time, right? They only have about three weeks or so, three and a half weeks after the deadline to settle it all uh, before you get to that safe harbor date in uh, in early December. And and so it all has to be done on an accelerated schedule. That's right. And Justice Alito, with respect to Pennsylvania, said the other day, you know, we're ready to do this very quickly. We can't do it before Election Day but we can decide this case shortly. Um, and you're right, Neil, because uh, Bush versus Gore went right up to that safe harbor deadline, yeah. right to that day. <laughs> 12 hours or something. Yeah, exactly. 
Gentlemen, I think that was, uh, uh, I think we've gone over our time, but uh, it was well worth, uh, well worth it. Um, looking forward to uh, doing a recap after the election. Um, if, if, this, if the polls are right, uh, the scenarios that uh, Paul laid out may not even come into play, but uh, if they're wrong, uh, then uh, we're likely to be right back at this on November 4th and November 5th. So stay tuned. Uh, in the meantime, don't, don't hesitate to email us any additional questions. I want to thank everyone for for dialing in. Please make sure you get out and vote and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com, or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration, that's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.